0: Um, My relationship took a tumble, and I don't think i recovered from that, so periods of separation, I had unhealthy relationships through work. I lost a lot of sleep. I think I started going out a lot more and uh, also drinking heavier. I'd come back from work late, I became more reckless, you know, I drove too fast. I would uh, say, if something happens to me, it doesn't really matter. So I was actually suicidal. I mean, now when I look look back on it, I had a death wish um, because I felt like life was crumbling. I have some people, like my wife, who tells me all the time that I should talk to someone professionally, and I I haven't. I regret it.
1: This is the ninth episode of Doctors and Litigation: The L Word the podcast where you'll hear the truth about the litigation process and its impact on the lives of physicians through the voices of doctors, lawyers, and psychologists with first-hand experience. Today, we're back to a focus on litigation and well-being, talking about the effect that litigation and litigation stress have on our emotional relationships and our families. Whether you're married, or in a relationship, or single, or divorced, whether you have small kids, or grown kids, or you live with, or care for your parents, whatever the structure of your emotional relationships and your support system, the effect that litigation has on your well-being often has a carryover effect to the people that you love and who love you. Now, love is not a word that we use a lot in medicine. We certainly don't talk much about our own desires for healthy or happy relationships or the various ways that being quote unquote married to medicine can sabotage those relationships if we're not mindful. And we're certainly not taught at any point how the demands of medicine can make maintaining healthy relationships difficult or the skills to navigate those well. As physicians, we might be smart, but we don't automatically get this right.
0: In addition to relationship stress, you're going to have stress with the reality of practice in medicine, but then you're so busy studying and doing other things that you don't learn to develop a healthy emotional life. We're not very good at talking or not very good at addressing emotional vulnerability and um, truly getting into feelings and stuff like that. Some people may have stable families, but you know, relationships are hard.
1: Relationships are hard. And the day-to-day stressors of a life lived in medicine make them harder. The long hours, the frustrations, the emotional burdens, the rampant burnout, they all can take a toll. Relationships in medicine are hard. And then when you add litigation to that mix, especially in high-stakes cases,
2: things might get harder.
3: Spouses of physicians who are sued really are thrown for a loop by this situation. And their spouse may or may not let them know how much difficulty they're having dealing with a suit. The physician spouse may want to protect the other spouse and and just not say anything and keep it all inside. And yet they may be becoming ill. They may be becoming increasingly withdrawn or isolated. They may be becoming more and more negative or less communicative or, you know, even show frank signs of illness or depression.
1: That's Louise Andrew, MD, JD, whom you've been hearing from throughout this podcast. And again, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, I do suggest you start at the introduction and go in order. Now, Dr. Andrew used the word spouses, but really throughout this podcast, what goes for spouses goes for any significant emotional relationship. So extrapolate it as might suit your life. Now, Dr. Andrew mentioned the urge for physicians to protect their spouse from the litigation process, even as it's stressing them out. There are many reasons why physicians don't want to talk about litigation, and we've gone over them in previous podcasts. And we've also established that this is probably not healthy. We worry about discoverability, but in most states, spouses at least are protected. And if we can't talk about it, and we're not managing it well in other ways, well, that can spell trouble. Here's Dr. Marge Passione, a psychologist who frequently deals with physicians undergoing litigation.
2: You've heard from her in previous podcasts. I had another doc who uh, went through six years of litigation and never told his wife. He indicated that he repeatedly told himself that he didn't want to alarm her. And he didn't want to stress her, especially around finances. Uh, When the litigation was over, he said that maybe the driving emotion was that he was too humiliated to talk about it. And he was too humiliated to talk about what was happening with the person that he was closest to. Talk about a paradox, right? But these are the kinds of things that happen that are resulting from the level of stress. We just do things that we normally wouldn't do.
1: I have in fact heard of several cases where the physician did not tell their spouse for years what was happening. I've heard of one case where a surgeon told his wife the day his trial started and then only because he thought it was going to be in the newspaper. One of the amazing aspects to me about having started this project are the messages I get from physicians who have listened and found it helpful. I have heard from physicians who blame litigation for their divorce or for changes in themselves that led to the destruction of their families. And this is more common than we want to acknowledge. Here's Dr. Greg Henry, whom you heard from in the last podcast, who has counseled countless physicians going through this process.
4: The spouse has to understand the fact that what their significant other is going through is unnatural and their personalities shift, they become less interested in that spouse and uh, more interested in mumbling and being angry. No question that golf scores do go up and number of times you have intercourse goes down. It is a form of depression that happens during a lawsuit. Now you think, well, that's pretty extreme. No, it isn't because it stays with you during that period of time. It can be brought below the surface, but it's always just there lingering. And it's, it's problematic for everyone. Every member of the family is involved in a lawsuit.
1: Every member of the family is involved in a lawsuit and unmanaged litigation stress will have ripple effects on your relationships and your children. But managed well, it doesn't have to be destructive. And the more you know about how to care for yourself and your loved ones during this process, the better you will all weather it together. Now, I mentioned some messages I've received from physicians about this series, and one of them was from a married physician who said he asked his non-physician spouse to listen to the podcast series to have a better understanding of what litigation was like for him because he was having trouble articulating it himself, and I thought that was fantastic. So consider having your spouse or partner listen to this series or to this episode in particular. Use it as a springboard for discussion. Maybe even consider therapy together if you feel that would be helpful. Now, if you're like me when I was first starting out, you might bristle at the idea of therapy. Doctors often feel like they can handle everything themselves and aren't eager to seek out advice from anyone else. But my mind has completely changed about this, and I'm going to introduce you now to the psychologist who first clued me in to how helpful therapy can be.
3: My name is Dr. Claire Nicogosian. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice and I specialize in self-care and well-being, helping people cope with stress, anxiety and depression so they can lead a full and happy, healthy life. Dr. Nikogosian, often called Dr. Claire by her patients, has a PhD in psychology and is a
1: clinical instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University. She's experienced in couples and family counseling and has extensive experience with physicians and other healthcare providers who are undergoing litigation or investigation. But when she first made an impression on me, It was back in 2013. I had already completed my first trial and was in the thick of the appeals process. But when Dr. Claire first helped me, it wasn't about litigation at all. It was about my daughter. I'm going to tell a story. Okay. About you. Um, In 2013, my nine year old daughter had a near fatal accident on a ski slope. And I was the person who had to manage it until help arrived. I was the one that actually gave her, you know, like mouth to mouth rescue breathing and. Um, had to, you know, put on that ER doctor hat, mm-hmm. uh, but on my kid um, on a ski slope. And it was probably the singular worst experience of my life. But amazingly, my daughter pulled through, and after she came home, she had some friends over to visit her. One of them was Dr. Claire's daughter, who was a best friend from school. I didn't know Claire well then, but when she walked in the door, she sized up my situation pretty quickly.
3: I could see that you were suffering and I could see that that was really hard for you. Like, as a mother,
1: Even though my daughter was doing better, I was not. I'd gone back to work, I was pushing through my days, but I couldn't sleep. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop the feeling of panic that was always right around the corner. Intellectually, as a doctor, I knew now that she was going to be okay. I had nothing to worry about anymore. I should be able to let it go but I couldn't stop reliving those moments on the mountain. Claire, who sensed all of that, asked me if I wanted to talk.
3: And you really want to know, like, how can I help you? Like, you just went through this most stressful event, having to take care of your daughter and really resuscitate her in an emergency situation. You know, that's the beauty of just seeing that someone's suffering and you can do something by saying, I'm here for you. And I think that relates a lot to litigation. We've talked in previous podcasts
1: about the value of reaching out to your colleagues who are being affected by litigation and reaching out more than once, trying to really see them and to be the one who offers support and encouragement. Now, that day, Claire put her therapist hat on and essentially gave me a session in my kitchen. And her insight was so helpful to me that it entirely changed my perception of the benefit of outside professional help. And for the first time, I finally felt okay about getting self-help books and seeking outside advice. And it made a tremendous difference in how I handled the latter years of litigation. So with Dr. Claire's experience with families and couples, I knew she'd be a perfect person to ask for some insight into the effect of litigation on
3: relationships and families. You know, I think litigation is a traumatic event. So if we're going to put it in this category of a traumatic event— when a traumatic event happens, we as human beings need to process that, and whether you process it in your community, in your family, with a friend, with a professional, you know, the important piece is if not now, when. So when there's a traumatic event, I'm a huge proponent of getting some type of support. So Dr. Claire came over to my house one day, and we
1: had a conversation about litigation, relationships, and family. My first question to her was how a spouse might react to litigation, especially if that spouse is not a doctor. I've been married for over 20 years to a physician, and litigation was certainly challenging for us, but I always appreciated the fact that I knew my husband understood the gravity of litigation and what it meant to me in all its layers. What if he didn't know that?
3: I think it's a really good question, and it's a complex one. You know, there's never going to be a one size fits all here. So, in your case, your husband's a physician. So, he was already up to speed. He lives in a world as a physician where he knows the reality and the potential of, of having litigation himself. So, you know, when you have a partner who's in the medical field, at least there's some understanding that this is a potential. Number one, that helps. For the partner who does not really understand the medical field, it may feel overwhelming you know, it may feel like you don't have a sense of understanding really what this means. Because when someone is sued, it not only hits their work part of their life, but it hits their core beliefs and their core identity of who they are. You know, that it's incongruous with how a physician wants to show up at work. They want to help. They want to make good judgments in the with all the information they have in that moment. And then so t- to have that in question with an outcome that may not have been intended, or maybe a frivolous lawsuit, the spouse may see it as like a minimizing, like, what are you really worrying about? There's nothing to worry about. Right. Or I'm sure it'll be okay. And that's really not fully understanding the depth of it. Right. And I think as a physician, there's a lot of pieces of confidentiality. So physicians carry a lot of burden already about their field with privacy and HIPAA. So already you're feeling a little sense of isolated probably what goes on in the day to day. So I think it's important when litigation happens that a spouse really talks to their partner about what is happening in a very detailed way, and not make assumptions that their partner is going to know how to support them, or that they understand the gravity or the intensity of it.
1: So, first, you shouldn't assume your loved one has a natural understanding of the impact litigation has on physicians, especially if they're not in healthcare themselves. It's something you might need to explain, and it might be helpful to them to learn something about litigation stress and. What happens to some physicians going through this process? As a refresher for all of us, including any partners who may be listening, here is Dr. Passione with an overview of what changes can happen with litigation stress.
2: One of The references that is very common these days is to refer to the malpractice stress syndrome as being very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of the symptomatology signs and symptoms are shared between the two. So in the stress, many different domains can be affected. So we can have physical, we can have emotional, we could have cognitive, behavioral, and we can have spiritual. So on the physical side, there could be all manner of physical symptoms from nausea, intestinal upset, fatigue, headaches are some of the common ones. On the emotional side of things, a whole array of emotions. like anger, grief, denial, depression is a common um, emotion, uh, insecurity, anxiety, guilt, fear. Fear on many levels, reputation, uh, isolation, stigmatization. Uh, financial implications. On the cognitive side, sleep disturbances often occur, memory problems, hyper-alertness, loss of orientation, decision-making becomes impaired or interrupted. Some folks have nightmares, intrusive thoughts. All of those could lead to poor decision-making. So what I've experienced docs telling me is they find themselves second-guessing themselves and checking and rechecking uh, when they're making a decision, making an order. On the behavioral side, withdrawal, emotional outbursts, folks being a little more emotional than they ordinarily would be, maybe a little short, uh, change in eating habits, uh, loss of appetite, overeating are common, restlessness, avoidance, changes in speech patterns um, are, are, are normal, uh, blaming others, uh, so you have a whole bunch of behavioral manifestations. And then on the s- spiritual side, why do bad things happen to good people? And um, I have one, one doc who told me that him and his wife would go to church every Sunday. And at some point in this process, he just said, I could not go because my anger uh, with whoever runs this show was so great that I could not see myself doing my usual. And he had a whole crisis of confidence around, if I continue to be a good person, are bad things going to continue to happen to me? And that's not unusual. That's a, you, know, you can understand how people can quickly get there.
1: Understanding how doctors get there, understanding the origins of litigation stress is step number one for a partner. But you may have to help them with that. But what if you just can't talk about it? Here's what I asked Dr. Claire next. There are, I think, some barriers to physicians opening up about some of these things. I've heard now about, you know, there's one physician who didn't tell his wife for four years. Um, I know of another physician who did not say anything um, until the day the trial started. And then was like, are you doing anything today? I'm going on trial, which is just, I can't even, I can't, I, I cannot imagine it, but I mean, I can, I guess it's just super hard for us to talk about with anybody. And I think certain relationships are such that, you know, maybe it's just very hard to, to open up about it. But why
3: sh- why should we? I think, one, it, it builds a sense of safety and trust to be able to share what you're going through. And when something like being sued happens and litigation starts, it's going to put a spotlight on all those places in your relationship that had fractures or weakness and you know depending on where a person is in their phase of life um, do they have kids in the home do they not have kids in the home are their kids more in an independent stage you know middle school high school maybe some are at home some are in college that's all going to depend on the couple's bond and the level of connection they have with each other you know when I think of families and couples with children 10 and under I mean you're still somewhat in survival mode and so I think when you're looking at litigation with a couple, you have to ask yourself first, what were the strengths of the couple going in to litigation? And what are the weaknesses, the areas to improve upon? So if the couple is used to going through the motions of life and work and taking care of family and not really connecting at the end of the day because they're so exhausted, then when something like litigation happens, it, it can be a ground for really disconnecting with each other yeah. and feeling lonely. So I think it really depends on the strength of the couple going into something, the life circumstances in terms of their other obligations and um, maybe family members they're taking care of and then also the individual's coping skills. Um, so each individual brings to the table their way of problem solving and getting support and working through stress. and. What I see a lot in my practice when I work with couples and families is not everybody copes with stress the same way. And so I always want to know what are your coping strategies? How do you get through stress? Do you internalize and just kind of hold it all in? In these examples, you have two people who kind of probably from their point of view wanted to protect their spouses and not worry them.
1: Well, we're almost bred that way. You know, like medicine is very... I, I feel like I was trained to be stoic. hmm You know, you're 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 gonna get a lot of stuff that you've gotta carry and it's hard to carry it sometimes, but that's what a good doctor does. A good doctor just sort of like buttons up and then you take a deep breath and then you go see the next patient and then you just I don't know, there's a lot of stuff we don't process and there's certainly tons of stuff that we don't share with our spouse. I think we're just sort of if we're talking about sort of compartmentalizing what we do at work, there's a lot that we don't share. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, with other people, we just tend to carry it. And even I mean, I'm like a oversharer about other things. I don't talk a lot about what interactions with patients or traumatic events in the ED or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't talk about that with anybody. Maybe I should. <laughs> I, don't, right. I, don't, I don't. But I feel like I was trained not to do that.
3: Well, that, right. And so but what's interesting is, right, so there, there's a function to that. You're able to be effective at work because you can compartmentalize and then somehow you've been trained in like an exercised muscle that holding things private is protective, not only for you, but for the work you do. If you allowed yourself to feel every time you had a difficult episode at work, you may never get up and go to work the next day. So you really have to work through that. So that's a great skill to have. But what happens when now that translates into your home life? Do you stay buttoned up with your partner? Do you hold things back? You know, what does true emotional intimacy look like? And I think in the work that I've done with physicians in my practice, as well as couples in general, depending on the age of your child, may not provide the opportunity for emotional connection.
1: So when life is busy and you haven't been connecting,
3: this is going to be a problem? When a, a relationship isn't supportive already, it's very hard to go through litigation and stay connected unless the partner really, really actively works to stay connected. I mean, it makes sense that you have to
1: have already this layering of emotional intimacy because then all of a sudden now to talk about it, you have to expose a certain degree of vulnerability, which is new. You know, you may not have had that role before, but to explain what is so painful about this and the fact that you're worried about all of these things... I I think it's hard to articulate and it's hard to be that vulnerable for some people, especially if, right, you know, as you said, like you're going through the motions day to day or you're super busy, everyone's working, there may be kids, whatever, like you don't have the time to really connect anyway. And it's hard to open up about this stuff. But then it starts to come out in bad ways. (laughs) You know, I, I think that I know myself that I was at times quite short tempered or impatient or even would like, he's he's trying to be nice to me and I'm just, I would just snap back. In those moments where you don't have control, how do you not do that?
3: Number one is you're human and you're under extraordinary stress. So I really like to advocate with people I work with to be very compassionate. To whom? (laughs) To yourself, it starts with you. So what, you know, there are two parts to compassion. One is empathy. So acknowledging what you're feeling. So when you're in litigation, you know, self-compassion would look like this is overwhelming, this is scary, Um, I feel out of control, I'm not certain what the outcome will be, I'm very concerned about my um, status as a physician, how my peers look at me, what may happen to my family, you know, I'm angry, I'm angry that this happened because it doesn't feel fair. So that's the empathy, let's be empathic with what we're feeling. And the compassion is um, acknowledging suffering. So right now, this is really hard. This is a stressful life event. And I'm, I'm suffering. So it's about being compassionate. It's not giving yourself an excuse, but to be understanding that this is a stressful life event. So we start there. And then you have to really say to yourself, how am I going to choose to cope with this? Because the guilt of snapping at your husband, wife, partner, kids, you know, parents who are coming to visit, who, whoever it may be, um, is that it fe- you're, either way you're going to be feeling something. So maybe you want to get ahead of it. So what do you do for self-care? What do you do to take care of yourself? How do you start that dialogue with your family and say, listen, sweetheart, I am under enormous stress. And right now you're talking to me and I feel every muscle tensing right now. And I know that sounds crazy. I'm not mad at you, but I'm so raw that I just need a couple minutes to like regroup and ground myself here. So it takes a little bit of self-awareness and scanning yourself and saying what's really going on here? What do I need to get through this? When you are under that degree of stress, I
1: think though it's very hard. You definitely feel out of control. Mm -hmm. I think it also, if you're going to phrase things that way, I think it depends on your partner really understanding that you are under a certain degree of stress, which I guess, again, underscores why it's important to make them know how hard it is if they don't
3: already get it. Exactly. And I think, you know, when, when you first learn of being sued, of some litigation coming down, I think that's so critical to sit with your partner and say, in in an uninterrupted space and say, listen, this is what's happening. Now, in your case, your husband understood. Um, So maybe you have to get them up to speed if they don't. And you have a conversation where you're really talking about it, much like you would planning a trip, much like you would um, if you were running a marathon together. Or you were doing, you know, something together, you know, so you, we want to take a little bit of emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. And we want to have that like a team mentality of
1: oh, I would never it's, that's interesting, because I think that most physicians who are in relationships do not think of it that way, like this is mine to carry. And that probably is unfair, because obviously, it took a giant toll on my, my husband and my kids. And, and it was such a long process. Um, that I can only imagine like how, how
3: difficult it was, but I
1: thought of it really very much as mine. Right, so it
3: is yours. It is yours. However, when you walk through the threshold of your home, now it's everyone's. The way I frame it is a family is a system. It's a unit. And so when you walk over that threshold from work into your home, even though you may carry the burden of the litigation it now becomes a family issue and that's not to be blamed that's not to feel bad about that that's part of life when one of your children have strep throat or need tubes put in their ears they're not doing that to you that's not their burden to carry on their own we share it as family And so if we can shift out of this mentality that, you know, to that vulnerability, that at home, that's the place you can get support. That's the place where you can let go of the burden in proportion. You you don't want to overwhelm your children. You don't want to overwhelm your partner. But that's where I, I believe you can get some support. The stress is going to be shared whether the
1: physician wants it to be or not. The question is just how? So let's say you've had the conversations. You've talked about it with your partner. You did the quote, planning the trip session as honestly and practically as you could in advance. You want to move forward as a team. Communication lines are now open. I asked Claire what advice she had for the partner in helping the person they love who's trying to function with this stress. How do you react when that stress is
3: coming out in unfriendly ways? Well, I think to begin with, one is, you know, how can I help you? What do you need from me? Do you need some time to, like, recalibrate, regroup? I know you're suffering. I know you're going through a lot. But what can we do to come together and be here for each other? Honestly, it's just so easy to descend into a fight when you're stressed
1: Sometimes my husband would be trying to be understanding, but would use this super calm voice that he only uses when I'm really angry. And that would make me angrier. Because
3: it, <laughs> it can sound really condescending yeah. and dismissive. So, you know, again, I think it comes back to some self-awareness. So I'm really big on owning my feelings. And so when I walk through the door, I will say to my kids, Mom had, mommy had a really rough day. It has nothing to do with you, but I've got a headache. And so if you could keep your voices down, that would be really awesome. And if they can't keep their voices down because they're just, whatever, being all wild, then I'll go and and say to my husband, listen, I I need a half hour. Or can you put them to bed? Like, I just don't have it in me tonight. That
1: prefacing your interaction with this is the emotion that I'm feeling right now, I'm very stressed right now, and it has nothing to do with you, Seems very important, uh, especially
3: for for kids, I imagine. It is. I think children are great at filling in the blanks. And so they're going to always make the attribution it's something they did. Or it's mommy and daddy aren't getting along. So regarding kids, I think most parents would want to insulate their
1: children from what was going on. But they probably pick up on the stress of the parent. And what can we do about that?
3: Well, I think a lot. And, I, you know, the research shows that when you look at depressed parents, they have some one common trait is that they don't respond to their children in a timely manner. So when someone's depressed, they may wait longer to respond to their child's needs. So that's something to pay attention to is that um, when you're feeling depressed, to be as responsive as you can is going to be helpful. To take breaks as often as you can to kind of restore yourself. So I do, you know, when you ask how can you help with children when you're going through litigation, number one, it comes back to the individual. How are you taking care of yourself? Are you starting with getting a good night's sleep? Are you managing your stress by some type of exercise? Are you eating well throughout the day? You know, I think people who are going through litigation tend to not, you know, they kind of go into autopilot mode where they forget to eat or they may lose weight or they may have symptoms of depression. And so that becomes a stacking effect. And now when people are sleep deprived, it's very hard to access good coping skills like impulse control, mm-hmm. anger management, judgment, mm-hmm. responding appropriately. So, you know, I always encourage people who are going through incredible stress is take care of your physical well-being, your sleep, your hydration, your nutrition, exercise. And for people who are going through acute stress, you know, perhaps in the trial period or right after, I always encourage hold off on alcohol use, because I think mm-hmm. alcohol use becomes a slippery slope, mm-hmm. and so, um, and it actually, you know, as a depressant, can make, and exacerbate moods in, in not a healthy way. More arguments. I can't tell you how many times in in um, sessions with clients working with couples, they always fight after too much alcohol. And so, you know, those are the things I think you the safeguards an individual can put in place. Um, And then on top of it, it's doing some coaching with their kids. You know, mommy's going through something really stressful at work. Some days you may see me come home, and I'm going to look really tired, and that's okay. I'm taking care of myself. So maybe we can have special check-in time every day like you normally would do. So for children, it's so important to keep routines. So keep the family dinner, keep the routine, keep those activities that you normally do. I think that's most disruptive to a child is when mom or dad go through something and then their whole world feels like they've it's changed. That can create anxiety for the child. So you want to keep routine and structure as best in place. So if you've always done bedtime routine, try to keep that going. It's like an anchoring point between you and your child that helps. I asked Claire a little bit more on how to talk to kids about the litigation process, depending on how old they are. So when it, when it comes to talking to children about what you're going through in terms of litigation and work stress, I think it's always important to, to manage your own emotions. I think what gets overwhelming for children is when parents... Um, don't know how to contain it, and they've kind of put their anxiety on their child. So there's this delicate balance of being transparent and allowing them to know what's happening, but not overwhelming them. You know, so if you have a highly anxious child, you probably want to keep it very factual and very simple, whereas a child who can maybe handle it differently, you may be able to be more expressive. But in terms of how to discuss this with a child, I think you always have to look through the developmental lens of the child. You know, so the younger the child, probably the more factual and concrete and brief it is. But I think it's also important to understand, you know, children want to know, how does it impact me? So what does that mean? Does that mean mommy is going to miss sometimes some morning routine or drop off or maybe something at a school school play because, you know, court dates are unpredictable and can be lengthy? So I think you always want to ask yourself, you know, how does this impact my child and how do I prepare them for that impact? And the other piece is. How does it concretely impact you? So if you know on the days that you've done something where you've met with lawyers or you've had to be deposed, you may be more drained. So you want to think to yourself, how is this going to impact my child? How will my fatigue? How will my irritability? What can I do to take care of myself so I can take care of my child and respond to them? Because I think children do better and can do better than we give them credit for. And so sometimes keeping it super simple and saying, I had a really hard day at you know work today. Remember how you had that hard day at school and you were so tired and you came home and all you wanted was mac and cheese and I didn't have mac and cheese and you got so upset, but then we decided that grapes would be awesome and you felt so much better with grapes. So you wanna keep it simple in their world. And, and when, when you had grapes, how did you feel? I felt better. Well, that's what mommy needs right now. Mommy just needs a little bit of time to find a way to feel better. And I think that children will rise up and and meet you there.
1: Of course, as they get older, that mac and cheese analogy isn't gonna cut it. One of my big concerns as I headed into my second trial now with teenagers who watched and understood everything was how I modeled handling my stress. I wanted to be an example of grace under pressure, but I'm sure I came up short sometimes. I asked Claire about specific challenges posed by more mature children or adolescents.
3: Let's think about a scenario where um, you have an older child, a teenager, maybe a young adult, and they're very aware of what's going on with their parents. And, you know, dad is wrapped up in litigation and is really stressed out. I think it's important for the relationship with the father and, the, and his adult child, the teenage child, is to open up a dialogue. So let's say, for example, you're living in a small town and news of this litigation comes up and now there's the family's being exposed. That can be very hard on the family, on the child, because the child may be hearing things outside that now impacts the child, but maybe he doesn't want to share that with his dad or she doesn't want to share that with her dad out of protection. I think it's so important for um, a dad in this moment to create space and say, listen, I know things are going to be said about me, and I know some of it's going to be upsetting. And I want you to know you can always come to me. You can always come to me. You can always share what you need to share. I'm not going to be mad. You're not going to upset me. um, But I want to be here to support you. So know no matter what happens outside, share it with me. I can handle it. I'm able to take it and I want to help you through it. You don't have to go through this alone, and you don't have to protect me. So let me be there for you, and you can be there for me, and we'll work through this together.
1: The other thing is, of course, older children are more in tune with what's going on around them, including how the adults in the house are interacting with one another. So if litigation is taking its toll on the adult relationship in the house, it's likely to be a source of stress for them. So we're bringing it full circle back to talking about possible ways of handling litigation stress with your partner. Having having not been to couples therapy, I, I I don't know how it works, but would this be something that would be suitable to go to couples therapy for if one person's under a great deal of stress
3: and everyone's trying to figure out how to keep it together? I think it's a great idea. I've worked with many couples who've been going through some type of litigation, investigation, stress. Yeah. Um, I work with a lot of first responders as well. And, you know, it may not be every week, but to have sessions as a couple just to recalibrate and get a third party's observations and opinions and get some skills to help them is so important because it's, a, it's being sued and going through litigation is, is, is like a grieving process. And so we give ourselves permission to grieve when someone passes. When something stressful in our life happens, we need to give that space to grieve as well. You know, and I think it's an enormously impactful and and can be chronic. Like in in your situation, it went on for a long time. Yeah, 12 years. (laughs) So that becomes now part of the... It's almost like another family member in a way. You have like this dysfunctional family member that shows up for a long time. Yeah, I was pregnant with my third child when I saw this patient.
1: And um, basically when it ended, she was going to middle school.
3: That's amazing. Yeah.
1: The only way I think I managed it was that I finally took people's advice, which is not easy to do when you're used to giving out the advice. (laughs) It's not easy. It's not. It's not. So you might consider couples therapy, but even without it, there are some concrete things that you can strive to do to keep things happier and healthier at home. Now, of course, this is not comprehensive or in any way one size
3: fits all, but Dr. Claire had a few pointers that I thought were interesting. So when couples are faced with litigation together, what I really wanna recommend couples to do is stay connected to each other. And what that means, it can look different for each relationship, each person, but you want to have some level of connecting, you know, verbally, physically, face-to-face and spending time together. And so, you know, with a physician's schedule, that may not be always accessible because there are long hours and days where you don't see one another. Um, So you're going to have to be creative in terms of reaching out for phone calls and staying connected best that you can. And also to limit the amount of time you're going to talk about the litigation. Because the stress of litigation can become so overwhelming that you forget that there's life outside of that. So it's important for couples not only to spend time with each other, but also to say, listen, I've, I need like 10 minutes to, to tell you how the, the this impacted me, the phone call with the hospital's lawyer. I just need 10 minutes of your time. Can you just listen and, and make sure that in that moment... whether you're the partner or the physician that you are very clear about what you need. So right now I just need 10 minutes of your time. It's a very practical thing to do. And then you also want to make sure as a couple that you're building in fun and bonding experiences. Um, So maybe that means keeping date nights, uh, you know, and available, going for walks, picking up an activity together, even in small increments can really keep couples connected. I think it's also important to remember that your partner has a life outside of your stress. And so to be mindful to say, how are you today? How is your day going? And Um, let's say something stressful happens in your partner's life that doesn't feel in proportion with the stress you're dealing with, you don't want to undermine that and minimize that and say something like, well, you should count yourself lucky that that's your stress. You know, that's very dismissive of your partner. So, you know, stress is stress. And um, sometimes the scope and scale is more intense. But I think it's important for the person going through litigation to still give to their partner. And remember that it's a two-way street. You know, if you're going to take out the emotional bank during times of stress, you have to be able to replenish it. And so having those positive bonding moments where you take care of one another and have fun together is going to help for those moments where you lose your mind and you say something because you're so stressed out or feeling irritable.
1: If those positive bonding moments once included physical intimacy... That, too,
3: can take a hit during litigation, as Dr. Henry alluded to in the beginning of this episode. One of the things that I also see working with couples during times of stress is disconnection through physical intimacy. And I think it's important, you know, for both the physician and their partner to understand that when something like litigation happens, that there can be a depressive response And so depression is a loss of, so it can be a loss of interest in activities you once enjoyed, loss of sleep, (laughs) loss of desire to be socially connected to people, loss of appetite, and just an overall worldview that is more negative, more irritable, more cautious. And one thing that couples often are reluctant to talk about, but find so much relief in doing so is that their sexual intimacy during times of stress really can be hijacked because one person is feeling so depressed, there is absolutely no libido. And if that's the way couples are used to connecting is through physical intimacy, then that can feel like another loss on top of. So now the, the person may be feeling so ineffective in all different places of their life because they're not able to do what they once did. And so I think it's really important for couples if and partners if they notice that there's a change in connection, emotional and physical, that libido is dropped, that there's no physical intimacy anymore, is to be loving and supportive and say, you know, it seems like we're not connecting. And I'm wondering, what can I do to help you? That's really important because you don't want your partner to feel like you're rejecting them. But there's a depressive reaction to me being sued. One of the last things that Claire
1: and I talked about was the Gottman method of couples therapy. The Gottman Institute, which you can read more about at Gottman.com, it's G-O-T-T-M-A-N.com, promotes a research-based approach to relationships.
3: And Claire shared with me a few of their basic principles. The other thing I like to educate clients about is that there are traits that are very unhealthy in a relationship and doctors John and Julie Gottman are wonderful psychologists and researchers at the Gottman Institute. And they talk about something called, in their research, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And it sounds super scary. Um, It's not. It's actually based on a lot of research. And they can predict couples who are more vulnerable to uh, divorce, separation, and conflict. And they have four things present. If you're familiar with the New Testament, then you likely know that the four horsemen
1: of the apocalypse signal the end of times, describing war and hunger and conquest and death. And the Gottmans use this described communication styles that, if left unaddressed, can predict the end of a relationship. The first horseman is criticism. When criticism is a constant in your relationship and your communications, the stage is set for the following three horsemen. The second one is contempt. Contempt goes beyond criticism. It's mean. You can try to justify it feeling like the other person deserves it, but it includes sarcasm, mocking, eye-rolling, ridiculing, scoffing. It's flung from a position of moral superiority, and it's fueled by long-simmering negativity. And in the Gottman's
3: research, contempt is the greatest single predictor of divorce. The third one is something called stonewalling, which means shutting down and not sharing, or not being available to talk about what's going on. Stonewalling can also be a response to contempt. The listener
1: withdraws from the interaction, shuts down, and just stops responding. It's easier than trying to work it out with someone who treats them with contempt. And the last horseman of relationship apocalypse is defensiveness in their relationship. Defensiveness is usually in response to criticism or perceived criticism. Of course, it's understandable to defend yourself if you're feeling attacked but it usually escalates if the partner dishing out the criticism doesn't back down or sincerely apologize. The defensive partner often goes as far as to reverse blame, to make whatever the issue is the critical partner's fault. And it goes around and around. Now, of course, these things may happen sporadically in healthy relationships, but when they become the mainstay of communication between two people,
3: there's likely to be a problem. When you have these components in your relationship, you are on the fast train to marital or partnership decline. So being really mindful of that. Active listening is an important trait where you truly can sit and listen to someone without an eye roll, without checking your phone, without being distracted by the television or your children. So you want to be mindful to look for those four horsemen of the apocalypse, and you can check out Dr. Gottman's work. It's wonderful. That, w- that can really help you with that. And you also want to add in the active, healthy listening with one another.
1: Another interesting finding from the Gottman's longitudinal research on couples is that there appears to be a magic ratio of a balance of positive and negative
3: interactions during periods of conflict or stress. For every five positive interactions of connecting can handle one negative episode. So it's a five to one ratio. So it's so important for us to be open and available and responsive to our partners. And to remember in that emotional bank of security in a marriage, you want at least five positive interactions. The Gottmans note that you can see this apply even in single conflicts. When the, quote, masters of
1: marriage are talking about something important, there might be arguing, but there's still an undercurrent of connection. They might at times be laughing or teasing each other in a friendly way or showing other signs of affection that reveal their positive emotional connection. They argue well. Unhappy couples tend to have fewer positive interactions to compensate for their escalating negativity. I know this has been more, quote, touchy-feely than some of our previous podcasts, and don't worry, we're going to get back to more concrete things, but a couple of thoughts on why this is important to talk about. We spoke of the longitudinal research of the Gottmans, but consider the 80-year-long so-called Harvard Happiness Study, or the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which showed that strong relationships are among the most powerful predictors of overall health and well-being or a multitude of other research that show that healthy relationships are predictors of overall happiness and health. Tending to relationships is actually a form of self-care. And what I do strongly believe is that in the end, in times of stress, including litigation, it's our own human connections that will save us. Keeping communications going is a skill for managing what is for many people an outsized longitudinal stressor. Making space and time for maintaining connections is challenging in medicine, but we need to. Partners or spouses and friends are often the first people to notice concerning changes in a physician undergoing litigation. And if your loved ones are asking you to get help, it is probably time to get outside help. Don't see that as a criticism of you. It's reflective of the stress that you are under And it's amazing how far some help with that burden can go. You might start with the books or websites we talked about in the second podcast of this series, such as physicianlitigationstress.org or Dr. Andrew's site, mdmentor.com. Or if you or your partner sense that these changes in you are dangerous, it's critical to seek outside professional help. And you might talk to trusted peers about how to proceed with that safely, as we discussed in the fourth podcast. Consider that your well-being is intertwined with your partner's and family's well-being and that you all deserve to get through this and move forward together. Thank you so much to Dr. Claire Nicogosian for her time and insight. Keep your eye out for Dr. Claire's upcoming book on Motherhood and Managing Emotional Health and Well-Being, which is being published by Page Street Publishing of Macmillan and should be out in June 2020. Thank you also for the frank honesty of Dr. B, whose voice you heard in the beginning of this podcast, as well as to Drs. Passione, Andrew, and Henry for their expertise throughout this series. In the next episode, we're back to the nitty gritty, getting concrete advice on preparation for trial, trial itself, settlement offers, and handling the verdict.
4: Until then.